Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Wednesday, June 28th, 2023, and we're doing something a little bit different for this week's episode. Oftentimes on this show, we cover cases that are covered widely in the media, Uh, But every once in a while, we think it's important to highlight a case that may not have received as much extensive coverage and talk about how that case has really affected people's lives. And so this week, we will take a look at one of those cases. It involves an interstate serial killer who was ultimately executed in Virginia after multiple convictions and even a separate death sentence in another state, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. All in all, law enforcement has linked this person to as many as nine brutal killings. And today we are very honored to be joined by two special guests with intimate ties uh, to this horrible story. Joining me are Jennifer Morrison, Vermont's Commissioner of Public Safety, and Andrea Schreeman, a L.A.-based writer, director, and producer. Together they host the Hero Maker podcast dedicated to revealing the real-life events surrounding the 1988 murders of their college friends, Rachel Raver and Warren Fulton III, two of the victims of the serial killer, Alfredo Prieto. Jen and Andrea, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and this journey with us. And I quickly introduced the both of you, but if you don't mind for listeners, tell us a little bit uh, more about yourselves. Go ahead, Jen. Sure. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm the Commissioner of Public Safety in the state of Vermont. And prior to that, I spent 28 and a half years in municipal policing, uh, serving in every rank and role between patrol officer and chief of police in the city of Burlington, where I spent 23 and a half years, and in the town of Colchester, where I spent just over five years. Wow. And how about you, Andrea? It's... So great to be here with you, Joshua. Thank you so much for taking an interest in what we're doing with the Hero Maker podcast and in this case, these cases, these many linked cases. So I am a writer, director, and executive producer. I live in Los Angeles. I have worked on 11 narrative features, four documentary features in various positions, including in an executive producer position on a film that won Sundance in 2008, a film called Fuel. Congratulations. Thank you. I worked with that filmmaking couple, the directors on that, uh, several times. And in fact, we have a film that came out last year um, that that I highly recommend. That's called The Revolution Generation. And so I have had a little bit of traction in the documentary world, but I also um, work a lot in narrative and... Yeah, you can go look me up, but that's the that's the basics. And um, happy to be here. Great. And it, what's what's great about it, and as people are going to find out, is that your respective careers, though though you guys started out your your adolescent lives together, and then went off to your separate careers, they both kind of tie in and and play a role in this current project that you're both involved in, which I think is kind of a fascinating story in and of itself. Um, So what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through how this developed in your lives and and you guys please just fill in the pieces uh, where you can. But just as a short introduction, we're talking about in the the 1980s, you were both 
scholarship athletes at George Washington University. And Jennifer, you were the captain of the women's soccer team. Um, it was there that you met Warren Fulton III and Rachel Raver, both of whom would later become the victims of serial killer Alfredo Prieto. Um, tell us first just about this time in your lives. What, what were things like? Well, you know, we were playing soccer. We were training hard. We were training not so hard in the off season. We were, in many cases like mine, uh, young adults who had never been in a big city environment like Washington, D.C. before. Uh, so there was a whole lot to discover at GW, um, studying, making friends. And we hung out a lot with the uh, the women's soccer players, hung out a lot with the gymnasts, uh, the women gymnasts, and then with the men's soccer team, the men's baseball team and the wrestlers. So there was definitely large groups of you know athletic uh, students who hung around together. And we, it, I mean, it was typical college times. We were a little bit in a bubble and we had yeah. a really wonderful time at GW. Um, I met Rachel when I, you know, first day of preseason, my freshman year at GW. She was a couple of years older than me. Um, <clears throat> and then in her, uh, the year before she was murdered, we met Warren through her. Warren had been a transfer onto the boys, uh, the men's baseball team. And when the two of them got together, we were all just like, oh, they're so cute together. They're so, so adorable. And they really were. They, they were this all-American couple who were responsible and respectful. Um, they were smart, funny, athletic. And there's just so much that I could say that's positive about Warren and Rachel. But they truly were the epitome of all-American kids who were just starting out in their life. Yeah, I I I was not a part of uh, the athletic life when I was in college, but I can imagine and, and Andrea to fill us in on this, how how it, it's got to be almost like a, a fraternity or sorority environment with the it's got to be closer is what I'm imagining. I'm and I'm and you tell us, but this is how I'm imagining that it's just a different experience to be a part of the athletic life on a campus like this. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would add from the gymnastics side is that we trained hard in the off season, <laughs> Jen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was very close knit, and part of that was that there was a massive, um, and I, I guess this happens on most university campuses where freshmen have their own dorm. You know, the kids who are coming in, there's a place where. But uh, as an incoming freshman and an athlete, I didn't have that. We went immediately to the athletic dorms, which were yeah. um, maybe a little nicer. We had kitchens. We would go eat together. We would train together. We would hang out together. And and they wanted we were considered student athletes. So student first, they wanted to make sure that, you know, we were really keeping up with our studies. And so we did that also studied together and traveled together. And yeah, it was very it, it was a really unique experience for sure. Yeah. And, and Jen, you started to touch on this a little bit, but I'll, I'll start with you, Andrea. What tell us about Rachel and Warren? What what were they like? Just give us a, a flavor of these people. You know, I'm actually going to share some of the things that I we've learned. <laughs> we have had and because at the time, of course, you know, they were part of this group. And and for me, it was more about the group than the individuals. But they were very kind. Um, very hardworking, especially like Warren, hardworking, devoted. Um, he was a walk-on to the to the baseball team, so he had to really oh, wow. work for anything he got in that situation. Um, he also worked uh, uh, worked himself through school, so um, he had a you know had a job. Um, and one of the things that Jen I wanted to add was that his parents were both ministers in the Salvation Army, and these two college students, Rachel and Warren, would go to church with his parents on the weekends. Um, so it's, it's saying a lot. It's just, yeah. you know, again, unique and, and stand out. Right. And 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 Rachel was a very bright light, smart and funny and very buoyant and beautiful, um, physically beautiful and about to enter law school. And that's yeah, that's what there is for me to share about them. Oh. Rachel had an uncanny ability to just say the right thing at the right time to lighten the mood. Like if we were 
losing or, you know, if things weren't going well between the coaches and the players or in a friend group, she just always was the one who could say something that wasn't rude. And it wasn't, it was just the right thing to turn everybody's mood around. She, she really was a ray of sunshine. Wow. They sound like beautiful people. And so I, I, now I kind of, I hate how this is going to have to turn in our discussion, but if you could now bring us to, we're talking about December 4th of 1988, Warren and Rachel go missing after leaving a local bar and uh, tragically their bodies are later discovered in a secluded wooded area near Reston, Virginia. Um, and according to the investigation, uh, Rachel has been sexually assaulted and both victims are shot to death. And I, I don't want to dwell upon the the graphic elements of this, but I think it is important and, uh, you know, doing justice to what uh, was the experience that, that you both had and the community had. Um, it's also believed that Rachel may have been sexually assaulted as she was dying from her injuries, just to kind of give at least one element of how horrible um, a murder this really was. I guess I would, I would uh, like uh, to actually interject something there, if that's please. okay. It was testified by many experts that sh she was shot and she was dying as she was being raped. And we have learned through those other cases that this may have been a repeated technique that Prieto used to prevent his victim from escaping during the sexual assault. And and again, it, it, it's not so central to our discussion, but I think that pointing something out like that is important because, you know, it, it, there are different levels of kind of depraved murderers. Um, but I think we're dealing with a real fringe element of monster who is using that as a, 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 the way that you're explaining it even now, almost as a as a tool to help them facilitate uh, the the rape and, and eventual murders of these folks. It, it, and again, I think that's important to understand as a backdrop to what you guys were experiencing in the family and the community and everyone else. And so, uh, Jen, I'll start with you. Just talk to us initially. What was that like, the impact on you, the community, the college campus, the athletic department to hear about what had happened? Um, <clears throat> we knew something was wrong when they did not show up. Well, when Warren did not show up for practice on Sunday afternoon and by Monday, when neither of them had been heard from, we knew something was terribly wrong, but nothing could have prepared us to receive the news and see body bags being pulled out of a field in Reston, Virginia on the evening news is simultaneous to receiving the news. Now, remember there were no cell phones. You had to be in your dorm room. And we were all gathered. There was a bunch of us gathered at the a corner room at the end of the hall uh, when we got the phone call that this was happening. And it was like we were getting the news as the news broadcast was playing. And it was a wave of, uh, you know, stress hormones, trauma hormones. And so many of us can't remember and we still can't to this day put together full memories of exactly what happened in the ensuing hours um, we've pieced together a lot of it, but for the GW athletic community, it was earth shaking, a place that we saw as our playground, our intellectual playground, our athletic playground, our, you know, partying playground, the city of Washington, D.C. changed fundamentally in all our eyes. Now, be very clear, you're in a bubble when you're at college. It was already the murder capital of the U.S. at the time, but that wasn't how we regarded it. We didn't see it that way until this happened. And the minute this happened, it was absolute devastation. There was a lot of fear, particularly in the younger players. And that fear could not be smoothed over because we didn't have answers for so many years. And I know we'll get to that, but um, it was a huge, huge ripple in a large pond, but those ripples were tsunami sized waves wow. um, for her friends and family. Yeah. Andrea, please. Well, I mean, what I would maybe just add to that is my own personal texture of witnessing, you know, the core group of, very, very close 
people, teammates, um, starting to move through the campus as a, it's like, it was like a dark cloud, but they were all so like closely knit. It was like this cloud of grief that just started traveling together and bonding together and um, supporting each other to try to get through it. Um, and then te texturally for me, I was working at the Four Seasons Fitness Club at the time, and I opened the club at 4 a.m. every mm. morning. So I had to go from Foggy Bottom um, down into the, like the base of Georgetown at 4 a.m., like at 3.30 in the morning. And I just remember running every day to get there. I ran everywhere anyway because I was a napper. So like I was always late. <laughs> I was like running. But, um, but yeah, but running and thinking to myself, like – you know, they're it just in a way that I hadn't previous to their murders. And yeah. but knowing also that year, 1988, um, was the year that DC eclipsed Detroit and had the highest um, murder rate in the country. Wow. You, you know, one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, and I, I think it's important to talk to people who you know, not didn't just cover a story or investigate a story, but people who actually lived through it is just these little details like, you know, you, Andrea, talking about running to work out of just fear. But uh, e even Jennifer, I hadn't even thought about it, but just the way that we get news now, it's so immediate and so accessible that you know, if it's not on your cell phone immediately, several different <laughs> news reports about an event, you're, you're texting 15 different people and sharing information but you guys are are, are not, don't have the advantage of any of that at the time and so you're just watching this all develop on the news yeah. and it's about someone that you're so close to yeah incredible. different time totally yeah. different time yeah incredible okay well you had alluded to it um but this goes unsolved. And so there is no immediate kind of closure. And you guys are, we're going to, we're going to skip forward a few decades um, to talk about what eventually happened. But before we get there, I'm one of the things I was most curious about in talking to the both of you about this is what was that like? I mean, it, it, you know, immediately I imagine there's the what happened and the confusion that turns into, well, are they ever going to catch this person? But now we're talking about decades yeah. passing of wondering yeah. what's happening. What was that? What was that like that interim period before you start to hear any developments? I can tell you that as the captain of the soccer team, it was really frustrating. I was trying to provide answers and offer some comfort and reassurance to the other players that this was okay. And there was nothing but a black hole there was no progress. Um, so in the short term, it actually made the fear worse because we didn't know anything. Um, in the long term, I can say that this case was one of the strong motivators for me beginning a career in law enforcement and staying in, in law enforcement all this time uh, because I couldn't reconcile the fact that some beautiful humans could be removed from the earth in such a savage way and that no one can figure out by who or why. And so trying to want to get answers for other people similarly situated became a big driving motivator for me. Um, and so it was one of those things that you could not think about for a few months at a time as you grew further and further away from the incident and being in college. But there was always something, the anniversary or something that came up or you came across a photograph and you'd always have it in the back of your mind. And then once information started flowing, I actually do feel like it, the, the way I felt about their murders changed a little bit because it seemed like there was hope that somebody would be held accountable. Yeah. Uh, Andre, I want to, I want to ask you the same question and I'm, I'm curious too, was there any, any kind of speculation at the time? Oh, this must be connected to some other event or, Oh, they have a lead or was it just, nothing and you guys have no idea what's going on calling all pop culture enthusiasts are you obsessed with all things celebrity do you live for the drama the laughs and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media 
then you're going to want to tune into the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So for me personally, because I was not on like the inner, inner sanctum and I did kind of move on with my life and I moved across the country away from where I thought, you know, this horrible event had happened. Um, it, 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 I wasn't in like a day to day bout with it. Um, but I will tell you that from now doing, you know, talking to uh, Rachel's sister and brother, what I know is that um, they were constantly, constantly working on it in communication with the investigators. Um, they would, they, her mom would find things that seemed similar, either see something on television or her brother would, he, I mean, the, the interview with Matt Raver is incredible. Um, he, he, he ended up finding evidence. He ended up finding a suspect. I mean, he was very, very involved. So I think for the people on the inside, they kept churning and churning and churning and and working and taking their energy and their sadness and their grief and turning it into some kind of action. Um, in my exploration, uh, our exploration of these events, I have discovered that this is like one type of way that people respond to this sudden violent loss is that they have this energy and they have to put it to use. Um, so I know that people were working on it and I will say Fairfax never gave it up. Fairfax County, put a lot of resources behind it, always had it alive, had an incredible uh, uh, initial investigative team on it. And then once cold case came on line, which was they were one of the very first cold case units in the country. Um, Fairfax is a for its size of very well resourced department and and officers remembered the case and said, that's the box I want. Give me that box. Yeah, well, I'm, I want to pick this up. And part of that I want to add is that the ravers themselves and the Fultons, but specifically we've talked more with the ravers, were such beautiful people as a family and they wore their grief on their on their sleeve that when you met Veronica Raver, uh, Rachel's mother, you fell in love with her and it made you and when you when you learned who the kids were, you know, it just drove these people like I want to do this not only be, for myself, you know, as a as a professional, that's what, you know, Murphy would say, but he's out there fighting for to get answers for for their parents and their families. It's it, it's incredible to see like you said, uh, that people handle this type of drama and grief in different ways. And some people just put all of their energies into something positive uh, with their lives. And I, I just find it so amazing and commendable. And I, you know, we've all asked ourselves the question, what would we do if, you know, having experienced something nightmarish like this? And it's just, it really is um, inspiring. If there's a way to find some positive energy around all of this, it's inspiring to see people who do um, find a way to, to, to get some good out of it or concentrate that, that, Morning into, into some sort of positive way. Um, all right, so now we're seventeen years later. Just just so people are keeping up with when I'm talking about a decades of time going by, literally as seventeen years later, Alfredo Prieto is serving time as a death row inmate in California, having already been convicted for the murder of Yvette Woodruff in 1992. Remarkably, after legislation requiring all convicts to be entered into a national database, a DNA hit in September of 2005 matches Prieto to the slayings of Warren and Rachel. Tell us, Andrea, I'll start with you. Tell us, well, first of all, were you guys made aware of this when it first happened? Were, were you still, was it still a, enough a part of your lives that you found out about this and tell us what it was like to have to find out that there's a, a a suspect now. We did have a breakthrough in the case five years prior to that, um, which was twelve oh. years uh, in two thousand, when their when DNA linked their 
event to another East awful, Coast case. Yeah, yeah. rape oh, and murder wow. that was uh, like 20 minutes away. And when, if you go to the Velda Jefferson episode, which is episode four, I think, of the podcast, the mother of that young lady speaks and and speaks about how the families came together and started to to share in their grief and experiences and found some um kind of love and and hope uh, renewed hope out of that connection it's a really um it, that was a big change for us that was like the first moment where we were like oh my goodness like th- th- this might actually <laughs> there's movement this might actually yeah. have there might be hope that we could find this killer and, but and, but and, it was just linking these murders we didn't know the killer at that time well but correct me if i'm wrong here you're then realizing at that point that this may be a serial killer right or they at least this person is responsible for other murders it isn't some isolated event of some person that may have disappeared long time ago yeah i don't think serial killer was really in the vernacular vernacular yet but right. it was not surprising based on the just you know grotesque nature of what happened to Rachel and Warren that this person had killed someone else wow right and then in 2005 when the suspect was identified and learning that he was already on death row for other gruesome crimes i can tell you that we learned of this the women's soccer team learned of this in a very timely manner it, it wasn't immediate i'm sure it was days after the family uh found out but that was one of those points where, you know, maybe you haven't talked to your teammates in a year. Maybe you haven't really stayed in touch. And all of a sudden we're all communicating again with like, can you believe it? Can you believe it? And it, while it introduced a level of ickiness because it be, started to become clear that this was not just a serial killer, but a depraved and indiscriminate serial killer who did not just kill people to sexually assault the women uh, and whose victims spanned an age range from 15 to the 70s it became clear that this was a really depraved human, but that it also brought some closure. And so it's a mixed bag of emotions that I remember feeling when it finally felt like there's an answer as to the who, we'll never know the why, but the guy is locked up. So yeah, it was a good yeah. moment. Yeah. Was- tell, tell me a little bit more about what you were saying that you're starting to figure out how depraved this person was. Did you, did you come to be aware of the circumstances of, of a vet's murder at that time? So in the early days in 2005, all we knew is that he was on death row for a triple abduction that resulted in the homicide of a teenager. That's all I knew. And um, in fact, that's all I knew about his victims, even heading into the podcast with Andrea, because one of the agreements that she and I came to in the course of um, dreaming up the Hero Maker podcast was she had taken a lot of time, years, a couple of years to really research Alfredo Prieto, who he was, who his victims were, kind of the arc of his criminal missteps. Um, And we agreed that I would learn with our guests that as we interviewed people and learned more about it, that I would be learning alongside our guests so that I did not, I intentionally did not read any more about the case, didn't dive into it. Wow. Andrea, when, when did you start to dive into it? 2020. Um, 2020. Yeah. I, so I used to go to, well, I still go to the Sundance Film Festival, you know, as much as possible. And, I, and my college roommate was a soccer player. Shout out to Mulligan. What's up Mulligan? <laughs> and Uh, So I would go stay with her in Salt Lake for one night before I go to the festival and then one night on the other side. And that year I was heading to the festival and we just had we were kind of like talking and we brought up the events and Rachel and Warren and, you know, the soccer team and what's everybody up to and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, why has nobody ever done anything about this story? Because it's true crime is so popular. Like, why wouldn't, you know, so I just started, I I went to Sundance and I just started dropping the one liner. I'm thinking about doing a story about my two friends who were murdered in college. And of course, you know, you say my two friends murdered in college and every producer is like, what? (laughs) Um, So that's what kind of, when I recognized that it was a story that not just I was going to be interested in because, but I think that that seed was planted 
around the time of the execution, quite honestly. Yeah, so 2015. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. You want to say something about that, Jen? No, I just remember that you and I connected um, shortly after the execution. You had uh, uh, seen something I had posted on Facebook that sort of was, a, I guess, a jumble of emotions about the execution. It didn't feel like a jumble of emotions, Jen. I know you're getting emotional right now, but what it felt like was it almost looked like you 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 saw the arc of your life and how it all fit together and how this horrible thing that happened when you were still in your formative years had sent you on a trajectory. And it was like what you've been working for as a police leader your whole life, which is justice, had finally come to bear not only in a professional way, but like in this very personal way, it felt really, but it was packed with emotion. And yes, that's oh, where I was like, very Whoa. sweet. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very, very, very um, almost like finally realizing the impact this case had had that had never been resolved or dealt with or even talked through when I was 20 years old when it happened. Um, so, yeah, it, it felt that the the execution felt like a really big moment and she and I connected after that and little did we know that a couple years later the idea to do something and tell Rachel and Warren's story would percolate to the surface but uh, as soon as it did and she and I talked we we agreed that I should not you know there's so much information accessible now I could easily dove into all this and played investigator and snooped around but but I will we say Jen the fact that you are working full-time uh, as part of the governor's cabinet <laughs> and also have, uh, you know, a mother you're taking care of and other personal things in mm -hmm. your life that, you know, demand your time. Part of that exploration was, could we possibly do this without forcing Jen into having to prepare a lot? And yeah. it was kind of like, you know, one of those boundaries that goes, oh, you're going to work within this. And that actually made it seem more compelling. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to I want to be able to 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 complete the arc of this story with Prieto and him being brought to justice and everything else. But I'm I'm realizing and speaking to you that it, that's not exactly how it played out for you guys. That you 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 um, almost revisited it after it after after reconnecting after the kind of ultimate conclusion, at least of Prieto um, in in the in the most serious of sense, ultimate co conclusion of him. But l I want to fill in for, for listeners, how this all kind of concluded. So he's, they get a DNA match in California. He's extradited from California to Virginia to face charges for, for Rachel and Warren's deaths. That's right. Brought on trial in 2007, he's convicted and he's sentenced to death for their killings in Virginia, three times. which is three trials sentenced to death three times. They wanted to so make sure they got it right. Yeah, no, please, <laughs> please talk about that because that's also really interesting. You know, from this, this program, we try to do it as a, at least nominally kind of legally based program. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of all of this is you do not hear about that. His defense team was literally one of the best in the country. Peter Greenspun and Jonathan Shapiro, they re they defended, I don't know if you remember the DC sniper, the DC sniper. Yeah. I mean, these guys are like rock stars and they trotted them out for this guy. And he had the most robust, you know, defense you could have. And I think they looked at every single loophole they could find. They looked at every single opportunity to, you know, mistrial. They looked at every, you know, and, and so, it just, you know, technical details were pointed out and and they, you know, had to retry him and retry him. And, and I think that's part of why that happened. Which is also um, a, a, a funny aside in all of this is he's all, when he's as he's sitting on trial for a death for a death penalty case in Virginia, he's already convicted and facing death. Yeah, but they California. don't know that. They, to, the, the, the jury doesn't know jury that. Jury doesn't know that. No, I I know, but I'm saying the defense attorneys do. Right? Oh yeah, but and, they, and, they and also knew that. Everybody else involved. They knew that California wasn't going to ever get around to actually executing him, so they brought him to Virginia where they might get it done. Is is that it? Was that kind of the discussion going around? Or you think Absolutely. that was really Listen to the Bob Murphy. Yeah, 
He's the cold case investigator. Interesting. Episode eight. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So to, to, to kind of close this arc here, he's, his execution is carried out on October 1st, 2015 in Virginia. Um, we're talking about a crime spree of totally after, by the way, appeal, 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 Right. you know, waiting for phone calls from the governor right there, right before it happens. Like, are they going to stay the execution protesters outside? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you're, you're giving me facts that are, are, uh, updated even from what I know and the research that we've done on this, but it's alleged nine murders. You're now saying, one additional un, unidentified victim, f- four rapes at least, right? And this is over, and this was what I found astonishing, a two-year period. Is that right? Well, his crimes, I think, started around 84. Like, they're documented crimes. We started Yeah, one, I think it's the Bob Murphy episode where we know that he was involved in an abduction and a rape earlier and when he was posing under another name. And then... The same investigator who investigated that rape when he was a young detective on the sex crimes unit ended up being the cold case detective on Rachel and Warren's case. And when he got the box of info and was going through it, as all good cold case investigators do when they first get assigned a new case, a driver's license fell out of the box. And it was that guy that he had investigated for an abduction and rape. Um, using a different name turned out to be the same guy who murdered Rachel and Warren. Incredible coincidence, like spine tingling when you listen to that episode. Yeah. But you're right. It's about, it's about an 18, 20 month period where he is out there doing all his stuff, both on the East coast and then moves back to California and on the West coast as well. The stuff that we know about. Yeah. The stuff that we know about. I I don't want this, um, to turn into a, an episode about him. I mm-hmm. mean, it's about you guys and the other lives affected, but I am curious as to what what was learned about him. Do we have any idea as to what created this monster in your investigation? What is learned about this man? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to give him any out whatsoever. Oh, I think it's a very typical story of, of very broken humans. You know, somebody who came from a, a background of a significant and repeated trauma in their formative years. Um, somebody in El Salvador. Who grew, in El Salvador, grew up uh, with his father in prison and ha- having seen his grandfather executed on the front yard. Um, However, uh, he has f- four other siblings. Who all turned who, out okay. Who, yeah, had very... <laughs> And are having productive lives and families and all of that stuff. And then the story continues that he, you know, he probably regarded his father who was on the East Coast and also serving time for rape at the same time that he was killing our friends. um, That he probably had a poor role model in his father and he got deeply involved in a vicious gang called Pomona Northside. And there was drugs involved. I mean, it's kind of all the pieces, the broken home, the childhood trauma, the drugs, the gangs, the poor role modeling. And this is what was unleashed on society. God. All right. Well, you you talked about it, but it now is the point in this kind of history of the execution has happened. Jennifer, you you make this Facebook post. Well, walk us through that. How did. What happened? How did you guys reconnect and, and lead us lead us now to this path of how we end up with the podcast that you guys have? Well, like I said, um, you know, I, I go to Sundance and I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. By June, I think, of that year, 2020, I had a development deal to to tell the story as a television show with a wonderful production company. And we worked for about a year. They helped me, brought some resources to the table. I did 21 Free interviews with people. We pitched it to television companies. Um, it didn't get bought. We got a lot of really positive feedback. Um, but, you know, once that it didn't get bought in that framework, um, everybody kind of dispersed. And I was like, OK, but it's my story. And, and it's still I still want to tell it. It still needs to be told. And I think we can do some good with it. And two of the interviews that I had done, one was with Jen. I felt like she was a such a great 
person to collaborate with because she has this life, you know, 30 years of police leadership wisdom and 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 to bring that to the voice of the podcast um, would be immeasurable. Um, and then we had also talked about Tom Jackman, two-time Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post journalist who covered our friend story for 15 years, joining us um, on the podcast, unfortunately, or fortunately, <laughs> um, when we said, okay, Tom, we're ready to go. He was like, I know I said yes, but January was, 6th happened and he had January to go 6th happened, cover and all he was the trials. Covering that. Oh, and wow. he was like, I'd love to do it, but I haven't seen my family in a month. So they come first. Um, but then we had a wonderful interview with him and he's been very um, kind in, in he appreciates what we're doing. And he thinks he seems to think we're doing a good job. Um, so, so yeah, we just, we just started interviewing people and Jen, do you want to speak to the commitment that we made in terms of what the podcast would be about? Well, I want to say from my perspective that this was a certain circumstance where I had no bandwidth to take on a project and I had never listened to a single podcast. I knew what a podcast was, right? But I had never listened to a podcast, never mind try to make one, Uh, but I trusted Andrea because, you know, she's a fancy executive producer and stuff out in LA. She must know about (laughs) these things. So I agreed to get on uh, on board with this project because it was truly a passion project of both of ours to tell Rachel and Warren's story that had never been told. Yes, that necessitates talking about Alfredo Prieto, but that's okay because his story might also be important to some people. Um, And so we agreed to do this podcast. And as Andrea said, as a matter of like practicality, because I had no time, I didn't have time to do a lot of research, but it also turned out to be a neat way for her to gauge my reactions as we were learning new information, as I was learning new information in real time on the podcast um, and to be able to apply my experience um, to what I was hearing, uh, to be able to be in dialogue with other uh, leaders in the public safety space to try and draw out their wisdom. And so what we agreed on is that the hero maker, the name of it, would be so that in each episode, we could try to identify the hidden heroes in these tragedies, whether it's this case or another case, who are the people who make, who are the heroes? Who are the heroes behind the obvious one, the cop who chases down the bad guy, the prosecutor who gets the win, right? Um, And we have tried to highlight in each episode a, a, a hidden hero and bring them to the forefront. The ancillary goals of the podcast are to leave some nuggets of wisdom for the current and next generation of law enforcement leaders and to hopefully um, engage in a healing journey, not just for ourselves, but for other listeners who may have experienced a similar situation and certainly for our teammates and classmates at GW. And I can tell you that it truly has been healing and and, um, it's amazing to me how therapeutic this has been it's it's a it's very surprising i mean i did not (laughs) set out to feel you know experience healing and it 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 has been great have you have you received um feedback from your other your classmates and the other folks who've not not even the ones who you're interviewing Mm -hmm. in a part of it but are people reaching out tell us about that yeah i mean i will hear and it's sometimes very random just someone will say thank you so much thank you so much for doing this. I'm listening or I can't listen to a lot of it because it's just too much for me. But I heard this one episode and it, it made me, you know, it, it brought relief. Um, it, they are really thankful and they are really going through um, and in their own pace, a transformation out of it. That's yeah, I think that's right. There's a lot of our friends who like me, like you, we were all young, we were busy. And this happened right before we all went away for Christmas break, right? And then you come back and you're diving into the new semester. Um, life life moved on for a lot of people. And I think that now that some of our friends and classmates are taking the time to revisit this, they are addressing a trauma that perhaps never got addressed. And we know that that's never going to result in anything good. So it has been a healing journey for us, but for many of our colleagues. And and actually, there has been some very random people who have been listening to the podcast who have said to me, 
this is so informative. I'm learning a side of law enforcement that I've never seen. I like, I, I love the conversations you're having with thought leaders, with the woman from the lab, when we broke down in one episode, broke down exactly what the DNA does and what it can do now versus what it could do in 88 and 90. Um, and they've just said, this is just so fascinating. You guys pick really cool people. And I guess that's really it. We talk to people on our podcast that we'd want to talk to in real life. So we don't talk to losers or assholes. And we just, (laughs) we talk to people we'd want to have a beer with. And I think it's surprised me how much I enjoy this. And I can tell you that now that we have 27 episodes out, I have listened to 27 podcasts now. (laughs) Josh, I also want to share, um, you know, there are all kinds of, things that we can share about healings and uh, transformations and great conversations that we're having. I do want to share some, you know, Jen said that one of our goals is to leave nuggets of wisdom um, in the law enforcement area in we're hoping criminal justice and, and also public safety. And I would like to just point to a few of the things that I've learned. Uh, specifically Please. about public safety in, in this process. And thank you for this, Jen. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me um, came from episode two with Renee Williams, um, who's the executive director at the National Center for Victims of Crime. I learned that 90% of juvenile offenders who are incarcerated were victims of a crime themselves that didn't receive services. Remember this, Jen? Yeah. 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 And so that's one piece of wisdom that could make a huge difference if we can start by providing rich and lasting support for victims we have a good chance of reducing the number of offenders. To me, that's really, um, you know, actionable. Um, Another thing that was really inspiring um, was we spoke with Chief Zwoboda, episode 27, um, public safety needs to be co-produced. This is something that Jen says a lot in the podcast, but he was such a great example of the difference um, it can make when you, are not having a one-way conversation about public safety. Um, he was He's an incredibly progressive, no, well, an incredible progressive police lead, leader, and there are many others who are finding these creative ways to interact with their community and understand their community's needs and work together. So that's something I've I've really learned. Um, the well, way we- and let's, let's not forget that you brought me a, a, one of my favorite uh, guests, which was Jared Side from the Center for Counsel. And- I was so jazzed by the work they're doing that I've actually applied for a large federal grant to try and replicate this work in the state of Vermont, both with incarcerated people, people who are newly released into the community, but still under the supervision of corrections and inside first responder agencies. So that's episode 15. If you want to get actually jazzed 14. as a, I looked it is up. It 14? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's an incredible episode about the center for counsel. And these are things that, I think we actually got turned on to Jared because you knew him and we had to fill in. Somebody dropped out at the last minute. So it was sort of a happenstance. And it was one of the most incredible interviews. And that episode remains one of my favorites. And and it's hopefully going to pay dividends in the state of Vermont. Well, and beyond. But but what I that was probably one of the first things I learned, um, Josh, in doing this podcast or in re- starting to research was that justice professionals and law enforcement professionals in particular are experiencing ongoing trauma. I mean, I probably could have guessed it, but to talk to them and to have them share with me um, that there aren't really solid institutionalized ways of helping them cope, and certainly not in real time, that a lot of times when these folks are, you know, retire from 35 year career in law enforcement, all the things that they never unpacked come rushing back and they have to deal with them. And, and, and they're, they're, they're out there like doing that job of, you know, public safety and law enforcement with this like repeated trauma. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and those are just a few things. I mean, there, there's more. Yeah. So you're not, what I like about your project as well is that it's not your typical podcast about, um, a case. You, you, th- there's a bunch of podcasts, true crime podcasts out there that will follow a crime and kind of tell it in an episodic way. And it's a limited series and it's 10 episodes long and it kind of goes through the whole arc of that. 
you guys are not doing that. It's it's much more of an exploration of a lot of other themes that you've highlighted for us here. But you're 27 episodes in. Tell us what is what is the plan uh, moving forward? What do you what what can people look forward to? Well, definitely more dirt roads because we <laughs> seem to keep finding these fascinating people to take a dirt road uh, <laughs> with. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I'll turn to Andrea for the order of play coming up, but I know that we are wrapping up season two in the next little bit and that we hope to speak to one of Alfredo Prieto's defense attorneys to get yeah, their that's perspective. Gonna, that's a big one. So that we have gotten a yes from his defense attorney. The other two big ones I'm working on are um, Tom Selleck. <laughs> Jen wants me to get Tom's on. I do. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> we know you're listening. Media at the HeroMakerPodcast.com. Um, I have spoken with one of Prieto's siblings, and I'm hoping that, that they will join us um, to, to share some stuff with our audience. I think that's a really interesting perspective. And I have also, I have also tracked down one of his... Co-defendants. Com- accomplices. Wow. Yeah. And wow. um, who is in San Quentin. And um, I'm in the process of seeing if we can speak with him. Wow. Incredible stuff. Um, Jen and Andre, this, I honestly, it was an honor. And thank you so much um, for, for coming on and doing this and sharing, you know, a small part of this journey um, with us. Where, where, tell people where to go. Where can they go to find the podcast? Where can, can they go to find out more about you all? Where, where should people look? So we are at the Hair Maker Pod on all social media. And we have a website, theheromakerpodcast.com, where you can get all of our episodes and also vote for us. We're in July. We're up for three People's Choice Podcast Awards. What? Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic. fantastic. Um, and if, yeah, you Google, if you Google Jennifer Morrison, you will be sadly disappointed because I am not the famous actress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, well, and thank you, Josh. We're really honored to be part of your exploration of crime and, um, and your show, which it's lovely to meet your audience. Thank you for listening, everyone. Again, thank you guys. Um, as always, I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>